Ephesians chapter 2 and I'm going to be reading uh, through verse 5 tonight. Uh, we won't get all the way through it, but we're going to read it and I'll be reading it from the Young's Literal Translation. <clears throat> so in Ephesians 2 verse 1 says also you being dead in the trespasses and the sins in which once you did walk according to the age of this world according to the ruler of the authority of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all did walk once in the desires of our flesh doing the wishes of the flesh and of the thoughts and were by nature children of wrath, as also the others. And God, being rich in kindness, because of his great love with which he loved us, even being dead in the trespasses, did make us to live together with the Christ. By grace, you are saved. And... I, I like, I read it out of the Young's Literal for a reason because a lot, well, there's other translations that do it, but the Young's Literal and, and others have rightly omitted the, the positive part of this. Um, in the King James, it'll, it'll begin by you, hath he quickened who were dead in sin? Well, the original doesn't say it that way. And there's a reason. And, uh, but the first verse doesn't actually have that in it. It's not until the fifth verse that he begins to talk about um, being quickened and made to live in Christ and defines that as the grace by which we have been saved. And it's a beautiful thing to see it. it you know, we don't think of, of the negative as a beautiful thing, but it really is because what he's doing and we'll read some commentaries that, that agree with that too, but Paul is wanting at the beginning of this to just demonstrate the, the innate, inborn state of man. The state of those who needed, necessitated the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God to appear. Uh... The grace of God was not just directed to certain terrible people, right? Who who lived wickedly, walked in wrath, and all that stuff. This is this is directed to all men, Jew and Gentile, and he he'll clarify that as we go. But it's directed to all of us, all who now are His body, yet in times past, this was your condition. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And that's why we spent a couple of um, sessions looking in Ezekiel 37. That being a picture, a beautiful picture of the, of the resurrection of God coming to dead bones. Dead, dry, lifeless bones and causing life to come in them through his power and his spirit. And... Paul in, in this is desiring and, and in other places he also does the same and we'll read some of them but 
He wants to describe the corruption, the emptiness, the weakness, the the life the lifelessness in which we walked. And in doing so, he's showing that this is this is not isolated to one group of people. But this is this this is the state of all. It's not just to the Gentile, but to the Jews. All who do not believe, all who are not in Christ, all who are outside of life itself you were dead and the beautiful thing is he can say that it was in time past that that was so but he's wanting to paint a picture because in this whole in this whole description he's wanting to exalt just like he did in the first chapter extol and and, and exalt and magnify the greatness of the grace of God that has been extended to us all. I find, and I have found and continue to find, that to understand the immensity and the immeasurable greatness of the, the grace of God, we have to have some idea of the depravity of men. We have to somehow understand what the, why the grace of God was necessary. Or we'll think it was, you know, just to give us a tweak here and there to help us out, you know, where we're morally, have moral issues and moral failings. And God comes in and kind of helps us with our morality and helps us live better. No, it was a lot deeper than that. It was much greater than that. You were dead, slaves to sin, under the dominion of corruption and death. And there was a miracle that was necessary, a work of God's kindness toward the souls of those in such a state was necessary. And, you know, I think that's what Paul's trying to get the Gentile and the Jew to understand. And he's writing to a Gentile church, who, you know, there, I'm sure there's Jews there too, but he's wanting these Gentiles to understand you and the Jews, not just you, but you and the Jews, all of you, all men were in this condition. You were dead in trespass and sin. You walked according to the, the age of this world, as Young's literal would say, the whole course of this world. You were under the power of Satan. You were under the power of the Adamic. As Jesus would say to the, you were of your father, the devil. That's quite a state to be in. That's quite a situation for somebody to just explain it that way and say, this is, this is what you were. Then you can understand and grasp in some way, some scriptural way at least, the greatness of the mercy of God that has been extended to us and re recognize why it was that we needed to be saved, needed to be delivered, why it's called salvation, why it's called deliverance. So it's not just a course correction. It is a total internal change from death to life that, that, that God brings about and that's needed. And that's what he's trying to explain. So he begins this chapter by explaining to them a state of, you know, you walked according to the de desires of your flesh. That's not isolated to Gentiles. That's all men doing the wishes of the flesh. That's all, all of us. 
under dominion of your thoughts, and this is the word, by nature children of wrath. Uh-huh. It was the nature of man. And we've, we dealt with that, and you'll recall the study we did in Romans. We dealt with the contrast and the connection that Paul made in the first three chapters of Romans. Paul began to show the evils of the heathen, the Gentiles in chapter 1, right? That they are, you know, and the Jews were, were zealous to point these flaws in the Gentiles out. They were pointing to them and saying, look how bad they are. And the Jews did that because they assumed that they were separate and different from the Gentiles in some way because they had the law. And so in some of those places we can read, in, like in Romans 1, uh, verse 26, and we've got a lot, we, there's a lot I want to cover tonight, so we're going to read a lot and go in a lot of verses because it's necessary we do this. Um, he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations to women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. He could have. He could have. He have could have condensed all of this, and said they are human. Right, but he's wanting to paint a picture. He's wanting to show because men will look at those words when they are pointing to some people that we say, "Of course they are. Look at them. That's what they are exactly." Thank you, Jesus. That's what they are, and we can do that pointing the finger at others. And Paul is about to just drop a truth bomb on the Jews who would look at the Gentiles and say, yes, sir, that's exactly what they are. And this is important when we get into the second chapter of Romans. He's about to talk about the reconciliation that God brought through the cross of both Jew and Gentile so that they could be the body, one body, reconciled by the death of Christ. But first he has to explain what they were before this reconciliation happened so that neither one of them could boast in anything. Neither one of them could draw a card and say, we have the winning hand. Neither one of them could boast in anything. Jew couldn't boast in flesh, and Gentile couldn't boast in anything. It all had to be the grace of God that wrought this work. This had to be an act of mercy that has done this. Kindness had to prevail. God's kindness had to prevail here. And he goes on in verse 32 of Romans 1. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I would advise you. Now, 
to write these down. If you go to the podcast after we put this up or the YouTube, but you can see that all these references that I go through, I, I put the references in the, in the description of it so you can go back. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, uh, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, adulterers, or, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. You see, there's a change that's happened. There was a condition, and that condition has been remedied through the power of justification by faith and the sanctification of the Spirit. The washing that comes in the, in the work of redemption. Why? Because that's the only thing that could, could fix this state. That could deliver or save us from such a bondage that we were in by birth. That's why there's a new birth necessitated. And that's the power of the new birth. It is when, when all that he can mention here, adulterers and a million other terms that he could use, that's when that is wiped away. Why? Because we're now found in him. And when you're found in him, none of these things can be applied. And you can look at yourself all day and say, they can be applied of me. Yes, they can. But they can't be applied to the one who abides in you and is made unto you righteousness. There's a power in the soul that has been redeemed that is greater than the previous state of being. That's why salvation, that's why it's deliverance. That's why it is we are brought from death unto life. We're not saved in sin, we are dead to sin. It's a total transformation. It's a transaction where God has translated this out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the work we're talking about. That's a work of God's mercy and grace. Why? Because man demanded it. The state of man demanded that work. And then you have the state of the Gentiles explained in chapter 1. And then you have Paul begin in chapter 2 of Romans. And he begins to speak to those who were making such judgments against the Gentiles and would boast in the law that they had, that they assumed provided them holiness just because they had it. And he says, Therefore thou art un inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, you condemn yourself. For thou that judgest does the same thing. Notice it's not in a it's not in a question form here. Right? Thou that judgest, thou doest the same thing. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? 
or despisest thou, listen to these words, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance? There's the this kindness of God. This is what we read in 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 uh, Ephesians 2. God being rich in kindness. This is the goodness, the kindness of God that has appeared. Why? Because that's the only hope we had. We are we are all dead in sin and trespasses. I want us I want that to sink in because to me that's what you need to understand as the basis of the exalting of the mercy and grace of God that has been extended to us. We need to know the pit out from which we were hewn. So then in verse 11, we go down Romans 2, for there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have, listen to this, as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law, there's the Jew, shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now that's a, that's a lesson all into itself. What does it mean to be a doer of the word? Well, he says the doer of the law, the doers of the law shall be justified. How do you do the law? The Jews did it for thousands of years and never did the law. Paul, as a man under the law, blameless touching the righteousness in the law, still could not do the law. How do you do the law? You come to be found in the one who is the righteousness of the law fulfilled. Amen. That's the only way. Therein, justification is the stake now. Not condemnation, justification. And then he goes on in verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts and the the mean, uh, while accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, behold, thou art called a Jew, and you rest in the law, and you make your boast of God, and and knowest His will, and approvest the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law, and art confident that you thyself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of babes, which hath the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, does that does thou steal? Now you'll remember we read in in First Corinthians. It was also in uh, the first part of Romans. But who shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In in one of these, there's thieves, people that steal, all of those things. He's pointing all these things out to make a point. You're all the same. You're all the same. 
There's no room to boast because you have the law, and in your doing, you cannot fulfill it. Even at your best, you can't fulfill it because the soul is still, as Paul would say in Romans 7, enslaved to the nature the seed that you were born of, the corruption that is in your members. You can't do this. And you think you're, because you have the law, do what you think the law says, that you are a light to those in darkness and you're a teacher of babes and you're above others because you have this law. And you say a man should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? You know why he says it that way? Because he knows they are lawbreakers. Not because he's watched them do it, but because he knows what they are. Amen. He knows that by nature they are the children of wrath and disobedience. And it doesn't matter what title is above it, Jew or Greek. He knows that they can say, thou shalt not, but they do it anyway. Why? Because Jesus in Matthew 5, we've covered this a lot, says it's not just the doing of it that matters. It's the heart. And when then the heart is in total captivity to the corruption and sin and death, there's no way the law can be unbroken. It is immediate. I was born. Listen to these words. I was born out of my mother's womb, a breaker of the law. I didn't I didn't have to do one act to cause that to be true. I was born of the seed that made that true. And this is what he's pointing out. And he, here's the beautiful part. It is that company of dead bones that he comes to that that cluster of corruption that he comes to and says come unto me that you may live he come to men he come to depraved men he came to nothing why because that's all he had to come to that's all there was there was no best of us. He was the best of us. But there was no best of us for him to come to and say, imitate this guy. Be like him. And notice, he didn't even say, be like me. He took that form upon himself for a purpose, to put it to death. So that men could be born of the Spirit and not just be changed in their behavior. Behavior means nothing. And that, that doesn't hold well with people who are all about behavior and morality and, and doing right and doing good. And I'm all for it. I'm all for doing right and doing good. How do you define that? What's your measure of good? What's your measure of right? 
I promise you it's not God's. God's is another. God's is Christ. And that's why a new birth was necessary. That's why the mercy of God toward men had to appear. The kindness of God had to come. To bring into the souls of men a life, a righteousness, a goodness, a, a perfection that men couldn't fathom, let alone attain to. Because he goes on in this and he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. You see that? They look at you who boast in the law and God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because they look at you and say, dear Lord, is that what it means to be godly? Holy? We're just as good as they are, apparently. And that's Paul's point. We're all the same because he's going to boil it right down into chapter 3. There is none righteous, not one. We're going to see that in another place, but this is exactly what Ephesians 2 is setting forth at the beginning of this. This is why by grace are you saved is such a huge, huge thing. Circumcision profiteth if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision is no better than uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, mean do what it says, shall not their uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you, who by letter and circumcision transgress the law? Because this is, now he's going to boil it down. Because here's the definition of a Jew. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision which is outward in the flesh. See how he does it. He brings it into the soul. Brings it into the inner man. Demanding, showing that what is demanded and necessitated is an internal work. He is a Jew. Meaning what God intended from the beginning when he created this nation. He is a Jew which is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but is of God. And that is so hard for people. We want the praise of men. We want men to be able to observe in our doings, actings, which is mostly what it is, an act, doings, actings, and all of that something they can de deem praiseworthy. When God saved your soul, let's use that terminology, when God delivered your soul from death and placed his son in your soul, He brought into your soul what men cannot know, what men cannot observe, what men cannot comprehend enough to be able to praise it. But God can look at it and know you and relate to you and define your soul's state of being by it. See, that's where we must come. That's where our understanding must get to, where we know as we are known 
where we come to know as God knows us. We comprehend our state in the light of the truth that God has wrought, not because he said I was good. Bob over there said that I did good today. Who cares what Bob said? Bob is just as full of sin as you were. You know, he's just an earthen vessel just like you. Who cares? <laughs> you know, there's, n there's nothing secure in the praises of men. There's nothing secure in man's observation of your righteousness because they don't even comprehend or fathom what righteousness is. But God does. And it's not in the scope of humanity. It's not where men can define it and see it and look at it and say, that's it. No, God looks at his son and says, that is it. That is where it is found forever. And the work of the mercy of God is that he quickens us together and brings the life of his son, the beloved one, the one that satisfies his heart forever into my soul, your soul. And that soul that has him resident in it from that moment on is secure. It is anchored in heaven itself. It is written in the Lamb's book of life is another way the scriptures say it. Because it has been bought by the blood of the Lamb. It has been purchased by his own work. Now, John Gill's commentary says this, the design of the apostle in these verses at the beginning of chapter 2 and, the, and some of the following is to, is to show first the exceeding sinfulness of sin and to set forth the sad estate and condition of men by nature so that he may magnify the riches of the grace of God and represent the exceeding greatness of his power in new birth. I like that. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to see that he's doing it and how he's applying that, how he's applying that to all men, not just a certain group of men. He's applying that to all of us. Now, he, I wrote this verse in here, probably put it in the wrong place, but we'll, we'll read it now. He, in the beginning here, I read that you walked uh, among whom also you did walk in, once in the desires of our flesh, doing the wishes of the flesh and of the thoughts, and were by nature children of wrath. And mainly what we're going to talk about if we get to it is the thoughts of the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. Um, and, and talk about what, what is meant there. But in Galatians 5.16, he says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, the same things we've read in the other verses before, adultery, fornication, 
uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against, the, and against such or contrary to these are what can, there is no law that can bring a charge against this nature. Now, the, the previous thing he was describing, the law condemns it forever. The second part, the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law that can say you're condemned. There's no law that can say you are you are dead. There's no law contrary to that nature. Whose nature is that? <laughs> That's the question. Is this is this a distinction? Is and it's beautiful that the, the the division that he's making in this chapter in Galatians five is basically the division between Ishmael and Isaac. And we come here and people begin to preach these things and they basically take it as two sides of the same coin and they say, don't be this, be more like this. This can't inherit the kingdom of God. This is good. This is a good Christian. This is a bad person. This is a good Christian. No, it's not. No. This is me, the first one that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What did he say? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is not about flesh and blood being converted. This is about a soul being transformed and translated. This man, this vessel, the, that which is born of a corrupt seed cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. This is an altogether different man. This is Christ. This is the seed of promise. This is the one unto whom a promise was made. This is the one that God gave it all to and said, In this one I am well pleased. That's who he's describing. Not me on my best Christian day. This is Christ living in me as the life the law cannot condemn. This is Romans 8, chapter, verse 4. This is the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us. If this fruit of the Spirit is our life, guess what? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of life has made us free from the law of death. And if we're dead, if the law of sin and death in our members is dealt with and we're dead to it, guess what cannot condemn us from outside? The law of Moses. I hope that makes sense. And then he goes on, verse 24, and we read this as a command. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And we say, see there? 
I mean, he's just talked about something there is no law against, and then he then we go right back into the mindset of saying, okay, now we got to crucify the flesh with the affections and the lusts. You see how we do it? We are free, and then we put up a road barrier right in front of ourselves. They that are Christ, listen to the wording. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Have. Why? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. There's the same thing being said. I am already crucified with Christ, dead to the same sin he died to, alive unto God through him. This is a work that has been wrought. This is the power of his life working in me, as chapter 1 of Ephesians has already said, that power that raised him up from the dead, being the power that saves my soul and brings us into a fellowship with one another and the head called being the body, the church, that is filled with the fullness of him. In that body, in that church, in that creation, in that city, there is nothing of the flesh left. That's why Romans 8, when he speaks in Romans 8, he says, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. Why? Because the spirit of Christ abides in you. You can't have both happening at the same time. That's not how this works. You can have a mind that thinks it and a, and, a, and a theology that preaches it, but you can't have it that way. That is not the truth concerning salvation. You can believe and preach that you can be saved and still be bound to death and sin. And I'm telling you, that may be your doctrine, but that is not your condition in Christ. That may be a belief you have, and you may have that belief by the evidence of looking in the mirror, but God does not look in your bathroom mirror to see his satisfaction. He looks at his son that he has provided to your soul because remember who he came to. Remember what you were when he arrived on the scene. You were dead in sin and trespasses. He didn't pick you because you were the cream of the crop. Because there's no cream, there was not one cream of the crop individual to whom he could come. God's mercy had to come. That's the thing. He already knew us. He already knew what we were. He knew what he had to do because of what we were. And then we get saved and we get all proper. And start acting like hypocrites. God knows the heart. And that's another thing. God knows the heart before and after salvation. 
God knows the heart before salvation was full of death, sin, and was evil continually, as the scriptures will say. But he also knows that the heart that he has put his son in is free from sin. And has come from death unto life, from sin to righteousness. Why? Because his son is made unto that soul, unto that heart, all things. Praise God. So in these verses, what we just read in Galatians 5, I mean, the, the law is fulfilled. And, and, and it's condemnation to, to those who by nature, by being born of the seed of Adam, violates its the law's nature and its intent just by existing, just by being. The law is fulfilled in that soul even though by nature we are contrary to the law and its intent. Why? Because the God has done this. This is a work God did. This isn't something you're going to figure out. Because this is God's kindness, not mine. This is God's mercy, not mine. That's not how I would work. That's how God does it. So you have a law. You have God's requirement. And by nature, by birth, by innate existence, I am a contradiction to that law. A breaker of that law just by standing in the room. And then the grace and mercy and kindness of God arrives and changes the whole state, changes the whole situation. So this condemnation that is now no longer existent, it's not no condemnation as the state of my soul now because I or anybody else is, you know, better and moral and you know, a better human being, just a better guy. He has changed his ways. The difference is there's been an, inter an internal change from flesh to spirit, bondage to liberty, from sin and death to righteousness and life. An internal work that is transaction, uh, uh, that is transacted, making Christ within the effectual governing dominating power reigning sovereignly and supreme over the soul and being in that soul the fulfilling life that abides within us the righteousness of the law fulfilled that's why it is the church which is his body made up of sorry Jews and Rebellious Gentiles. That's not what he said. If you looked at that body, and hey, you can look at that body on the surface, superficially, and that's exactly what you'd say. The church that is make up, made up of a bunch of sorry, crazy people. A full display. But it's the church which is his body that is filled with with the fullness and the abundance of the head, the head against whom there is no law and unto whom there is no condemning voice. See, this, and I get, this will become clear as we proceed and see what 
Paul is talking about as we look in uh, the reconciliation. So <clears throat> let me let me go ahead a little bit and uh, So let me let me read these. I'm going to read Colossians, uh, <clears throat> Colossians chapter one verse eighteen, and then we'll move on to where I want to go. And we've we've read these already. This parallels again with Ephesians, but he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, that he may present you holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. Now there is a wonderful, complete change that God has performed this being expressed here. And you see the cross in this. You, and this is the whole thing. This is, a, this is the work of the cross. You who are enemies. You who are alienated. He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. And see, this is the putting away of that which violates the righteousness of the law. It is to wipe it away forever, just like the flood did in the washing away of an old creation. And one righteous man left to define and inherit a new creation to present you holy unblameable unreprovable inside here's the newness of life the state of those who are now dead to the state of sin clean escaped as peter will say from the corruption and condemnation of former things that have now passed away and then he goes on. Here's a, another part. We read chapter 3 quite often of Colossians, and we'll read the first part. Set your affection on things above. Since you're risen with Christ, set your affection on things above. For you're dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you shall appear with him, also appear with him in glory. And we read that, and we stop there. But verse 5 goes on. And says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. What is it? Fornication? Uncleanness? Inordinate affection? Evil concupiscence? Covetousness? Which is idolatry? For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Same thing we're reading in Ephesians. In the which you also walked sometimes when you lived in them, but now you also put off all these. Now listen to these words, put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing you have, seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now see, this sounds confusing. Because in the first part you're saying mortify these things and now you're saying you've put these things off. You have put off the old man with his deeds. What are you talking about? 
doesn't mean to kill it. Mortify therefore your members on the earth means to live as one that is dead to those things that are earthly. Those things in which you once lived. What we just read in Galatians 5 will say the same thing. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Why? Because the lust of my flesh is my default condition. That is what is familiar to me. That's where I'm going to go. But that's not where I am. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. See? This is still in the context of set your affection above. Set your affection on that which is above. It's the same thing. And he's speaking to a bunch of people who are trying their hardest to live for God according to the Judaistic viewpoint that says, Now, give your members to these Jewish religious things. Do this circumcision, holy days, touch not, taste not, handle not. And what he's saying is set your heart where you are and set your heart to see the one who has brought you where you are and when he appears in your soul, where you are will become evident to you. Yes. And then he keeps going and says, so count as dead this thing you were. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to change it. Stop lying because you have put on the new man. You're not this trying to fix this situation. You are a new creation in Christ, and that's what he's about to say. You have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. That's, the, that's what is necessary. The knowledge that comes. It is the knowledge that is derived from the one who created it. The one who brought this about is the one whose knowledge you need to have revealed in you. Amen. Because in this state, it is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Doesn't that sound a lot like the first chapter of Ephesians, the end of it? The body that is filled with the fullness that Christ is? What is needful? The need is to see the head of the body. Because there has been a salvation. You have been delivered. You have been brought out of one thing into something altogether new. And this new thing that you've been brought into is in no way connected to or familiar to that which you came out of. Don't try to put the image and the similitudes of this previous things on this new reality. It doesn't fit. And when we try to make it fit, 
then here we are trying to fix it with these hands. These are the members. This is the earthly member I'm trying to activate and make work for God. And all that happens when I do that is what I am is exposed and always will be. What this earthen vessel is by nature will always be seen to be contrary to God's purpose. But God's purpose has been fulfilled in the vessel through the treasure that abides in it. See the, see the contradiction. We're always trying to fix something that's not broke. Because we see the contradiction in ourselves, but God knows the heart. Our heart condemns us because we're ignorant of truth. But God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He knows the state of the soul. And he is pleased to reveal the state of the soul. And when our life, in whom there is no condemnation, against whom there is no law, appears, we'll see reality. We'll see that we are dead to the state of sin and corruption and vanity. That does not give you a license to sin now. Why would it? Because you have a grasp of what you were. You have a grasp of the mercy that was extended towards you. Do you think that's going to make you run back and try to get into the mud again? No. Or are you going to embrace your father and say, thank you for this grace? And you're going to eat the feast that he has set his table ready for you. So, we'll keep going. Um, so, when we're, when we're looking at these verses, and I'm, I'm probably going, already gone too long. Um, where am I at? 113. Okay. Give me 10 minutes. I'll try to start on something. We'll have to finish it later. Um, But we were looking at, in these verses, children of disobedience. Let me read it. Let me read it once again. Um, In which once you did walk according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, And then he goes on and says, um, Among whom also you did walk once in the desires of your flesh, doing the wishes of the flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children of wrath as also the others. And I want to talk about those two uh, distinctions. This is uh, Paul attempting to show again he doesn't divide you and Gentile here. In some ways, he is contrasting them as men would think, as the Gentile would think concerning the Jew and the Jew would think concerning the Gentile. However, in this argument, he is bringing them together, just like he does in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Brings them together and shows they're the same, dead, corrupt, and in need of a work of God. So, how does he show it? Because he's showing again the commonality of all men in death and sin. 
So Ephesians 2, I'm going to read a commentary here real quick. Uh, this is from Adam Clark. He says, Thus they are emphatically what our Lord calls them, children of the wicked one. Now, he's speaking here in Matthew 13:38. He's speaking of the Jew. For they show themselves to be of their father the devil because they do his works. Uh, some think of the children of disobedience, the apostles, means particularly the disobedient, unbelieving, and persecuting Jews. But he's saying he's speaking, he does bring them into it, and we're going to show that, but he's also speaking generally as to all men. So in Romans chapter 11, we're going to use these terms that he uses to look at this. Romans chapter 11, verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, now, you know, in Romans 11, this is what, you know, when he's talking about how God has grafted in the Gentiles and, you know, has put aside the Jews so that he could reach out to the Gentiles and all that stuff. And now, you know, people have totally misunderstood and misapplied these verses. And, you know, basically they do with Romans 11 what they do with uh, Ezekiel 37 that we were dealing with, and they make it him speaking of, okay, I'm done with the Gentiles. Now I'm going to talk about the Jews and the Jews are the real people of God. And they're the ones that God's always after. So, you know, Gentiles, you get your chance here, but it's all about the Jews and God's saving the Jews. That's not Paul's point at all. Paul's point is saying, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, you almost come to be found in Christ. If you are going to be known of God and receive the inheritance that was promised, it has to be in the seed. It has to be in the one that God has chosen. Okay, that's the point. That's that's a very small nutshell, but that's the point. Romans eleven thirty. For as in time past you have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief. Their unbelief, meaning the Jew. Even so, have these also now not believed? that through your mercy, the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief. Same thing he says in Romans 3, just in a different way. That he might have mercy upon all. Why? Because that's who needs it. All. It's not just about the Jew being saved. Or the Gentile being saved. It's about all being saved. And there's only one way for all of us. And we're going to talk about that. He is showing in this verse the commonality of all, of the state of disobedience and death. Okay? Because the word here, disobedience, is the word that means unbelief. It just means unbelief. They were people that did not believe. He's showing the commonality of the state of those who are in disobedience and thus death. And all of the disobedience you can apply to all men, Jew or Gentile, is derived from what? One man's disobedience. Romans 5. One man's disobedience brought this about. One man's obedience brought righteousness. Can't, we can't divorce this from the context of the whole letter. 
Okay. So he's showing the commonality of the problem and the commonality of the cure for that problem. Okay. And we're going to read that verse right now, if I can find it. We go back into Romans 11 a little before what we just read in verse 15. For if the casting away of them being the Jews be the reconciling of the world, meaning the Gentile nations, what is the receiving of them but life from the dead? Now, guys, I don't know how much more clearly it can be said. But the problem is, it's not clear enough for those who are theologically bent toward a particular thought. Okay? So they take it, whatever, metaphorically or however. In fact, I'll read you in a moment something. Uh, this is from Barnes Notes. He says, some have supposed that the apostle here refers to a literal resurrection of the dead as the conversion of the Jews, but there is not the slightest evidence of this. And that's the absolute main thought in Christianity and what is dispensational Christianity. He refers to the recovery of the nations from the death of sin when the Jew and Gentile shall be converted to the Christian faith. So he's saying, uh, <coughs> what he's saying is, what is the receiving of the Jew now is the same as it was for the Gentile. Life from the dead, meaning the dead have to come to life. You have to be brought from death unto life. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. It's the same way. In fact, what he's doing in these verses is a beautiful thing that should cause us all to just think a while and consider these things. He's calling salvation and redemption and reconciliation, the resurrection. Doesn't that bring in Ezekiel 37, what we were talking about? In fact, this commentary even brings it in. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, says, says this and uses the same image of the resurrection to denote the great change that takes place in the people. Speaking of salvation when they're come to Christ. The problem is you have people who read these things and don't want to see it as new birth because what do we do? New birth doesn't mean much. New birth is the means to an end. It's not the end itself. Being born again, brought from death unto life, all of that means absolutely nothing until the big stuff happens. And I'm thinking, what's bigger than that? What's bigger than being my soul being brought from death unto life? What's bigger than the redemption of those who were dead in sin, needing the mercy of God? Nothing. When you read the complete, the complete Jewish Bible commentary, they take this verse and they take, they, they um, parallel it with Ezekiel 37 as well. <clears throat> However, they have it in three interpretive modes, as they call it. 
and they're saying that you can interpret it three different ways and be right. And they say there is a vague interpretation, which is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Then there is a metaphorical interpretation. And then there's the literal interpretation. And as I read it, I thought, it's unfortunate. It's not unexpected at all, but it's unfortunate that the one thing that they actually could point to and say the resurrection, this is the true resurrection, the coming of Christ into a soul, the receiving of life and being brought from death unto life inwardly. They call that the metaphorical interpretation, meaning it's kind of, you know, up there in the, you know, it's spiritualizing something. It's, it really doesn't mean anything. It's a, it's a cute, it's a cute way to say it, but it's not the real thing. So they diminish it in contrast to what they think is real, which is what they call the literal. And they say that's going to be the national physical resurrection of the Jewish nation that comes at the second coming of Christ. And I'm telling you, that's baloney. That's not true at all. I mean, wouldn't you think that reading this phrase, live from the dead, should immediately refer us to Jesus in John chapter 5, saying, he that believeth in me has passed from death unto life. Shouldn't that be immediate? No, we stretch it all out and make other things up and we do all these dances around the reality. Why? Because it's not perceivable to our natural faculties. Therefore, it's just a metaphorical, unreal thing. No, it's the reality of new birth. It's the reality of being justified and saved by the grace of God. And when he says, what is the receiving of them? But life from the dead, he that means to be accepted and admitted into a fellowship with someone. How will they be received into a fellowship and association with God? It is coming from death unto life. God will come and call to the dead. And, and this one, the Greek lexicon says this. Thayer's Greek lexicon. No, yeah, Greeks. It says this. What will happen when God accepts them? It will be the same as having been risen from the dead or the resurrection of a dead itself. I wish to God we could just stop right there and think about it and say that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. The resurrection has taken place. God has brought in his son who is the resurrection of the dead and he has raised us up together with him that we may live by him see I want us to understand the mercy of God that has been described here he did again he didn't come to the best of men because there's no such thing he came to the dead he came to dead men in bondage to sin but the power of his grace is beyond our imagination. As the scriptures say, it is past finding out the riches of his grace. It's immeasurable. In fact, here's a picture, and this will relate, and I'll stop with this, but uh, 
this will relate to where we're going to go in this lesson and others in, in chapter 2. Randy Ray, we were talking, he's done a study of, he was doing a, a study of Ephesians as well, and he shared with me his notes. And he found these notes, or he found the note that we're going to talk about uh, out of a writing from a man named Harry Foster. This was one of the things that he had pointed out to me. If you connect the mercy and grace of God, the kindness of God that has appeared to us, to come to us, consider it in this in these verses. Remember, we've talked about it. Remember the destruction or the doing away with Korah and the 250 that stood against Moses yeah. and Aaron? Okay. Yeah. And when you're looking at that picture and reading it on the surface, you would assume that the wrath of God toward them would engulf all of, not only those 250, but everybody that pertained to them. Why? Because God was angry. And he wanted to destroy them because of what they were doing and what they were standing against. But look at it in view of the mercy and kindness of God. Numbers chapter 26. Listen to what this says. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abram, these are the Dathan and Abram who were called by the congregation, who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah, when they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, along with Korah, when that company died, and when the fire dev devoured 250 men, so that they became a warning. They became a warning to all Israel. And we know what God did after that to to stop the murmuring and complaining of, of the people but listen to the next verse verse 11 the sons of Korah however did not die think about it in the terms of the kindness of God he destroyed Korah he destroyed all those that stood with him but the sons of Korah, those in close affiliation, familial affiliation with Korah, did not die. Now there's a connection to this. Do you see the redemptive purpose of the judgment of God? The judgment of God in this situation was not unto full and ultimate destruction. It was unto absolute redemption. Now, how does that how does that apply what the fathers were promised and denied god fulfilled it unto their sons unto their children and see this takes in what we just read concluded all in disobedience so that he might have mercy upon all God did not do away with all of them and say, you're all done, I'm done with you, period. 
You're all going to die. Everybody, your sons, your daughters, everybody, your generations are not going to exist. That's not what happened. He destroyed these men for a warning. Why? Because he wanted to warn them. He wanted to he wanted redemption. He wanted to bring to them what he had promised. He had to do this to set a set a boundary. But he had mercy on the sons of Korah so that they could come and find what the father rejected. They could actually have what the father stood against. Do you see the picture? So the fathers that killed the prophets, the fathers that were against Christ, the father, and, and here's Acts, Peter saying, it has now come to us, their children, the sons of those. He has not, he has not rejected us. He has not denied and, and uprooted his promise and say the promise is null and void because these people would not walk in faith. They walked in disobedience. No, it has now come to us, their children, who have believed. Amen. Because you see, the sons of Korah were credited with multiple psalms, were they not? I mean, a bunch of the psalms were written by the sons of Korah who gave praise to God. There's redemption. There's the mercy. There's the kindness. Many messianic psalms that pointed to the Messiah were written by the very sons of Korah who were recipients of the kindness of God. What a picture, right? It is. And we don't think it we don't think that. We think the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Well, it's the same thing here in Romans 11 and the places we've been reading. God did not do away with his people. We have not cast them all forever. But he doesn't say, so all of them are going to be saved. No, no, no. He says all Israel will be, be saved, but he defines who Israel is. Israel are those who are circumcised in the heart. Israel is those who are born of the seed of promise. You see, there's salvation. There's where it's found. That's the mercy of God to those who will believe. And when they believe and are admitted into the kingdom of God that their fathers were promised, guess what that is? It is life from the dead. It is resurrection itself. It is God coming to the dead Jew and the dead Gentile and causing them to live by his own life and bringing them into his own bosom that they may live by him as one body under the dominion of one head filled with the fullness of one absolute perfect man. And so, we'll stop there, guys. I, I, Raven, I like uh, what you said at one point, and you summed it up into a beautiful phrase to me. We keep trying to fix what isn't broken. Yeah. Right, I heard that too. Yeah. That's, Amen. That just sums it up so beautiful. Yeah, it really does. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, that struck me too, Julie. Yeah. 
it's very difficult to not try to put your hands on it yes. you know but the thing is we don't really put our hands on it we put our hands on us you know and that doesn't help at all uh Amen. you know god's god's hands the only thing that can touch what really matters the beautiful part is he's already touched it and it doesn't need to be touched again that's why it's once and for all so praise the lord for that you know and i and i think that uh, for me i used to think that uh what the bible says he was made unto me right that's that's real big that's that's big he was made unto me whatever he is right instead of me trying to be that I rest rest in what he is who he is that's right that's right then then I can always uh, sometimes I still slip into that you know go back and try to do yeah right don't we all it brings me back to who he is right well, that's because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Truth, and He's not going to work with us on the basis of anything but the truth. So, you know, when we do all this stuff, and you know, kind of like Abraham did, he did all this stuff, and then God would say, hey, come back to this altar right here. Come right here, back to the same place I dealt with you the first time. Come back here. This is where I want you. And that's He always brought us. And that's what happens? He always brings us back to where we are. He brings us back to the starting point, which is also the finish line. He brings us there and says, now, just rest there and learn of me. Learn of me. That's all you need to do. Just, there's nothing else to do. You know, that's that's wonderful news. Um, you know, it's terrible news to those who seem to have some spiritual energy about them. But those who are just finally facing the fact that I'm I'm bankrupt in that category. Amen. Uh, but the fact is, you know, while I am in my own strength bankrupt in that category, I am filled with the fullness of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a paradox, but that's the gospel. That's the truth of it. That's why it's not I but Christ. There's, you know, there's the there's the vessel, but there's the treasure that overrides it, and makes it makes significant unto God. That vessel at all, that vessel has no significance in the sight of God, unless that treasure's there. And just because that treasure's there, there that that means everything, and that defines everything, and measures everything, and that's why God just wants to show us what he's done in us. Amen. Uh, and you know what, Raven, and that can't be exhausted. No, God, no. Because he can't be. No, no, and no. And so he gives us a glimpse of himself yep. as we continue on with him. He, he begins to show us himself. Yep. That's what's exciting to me. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. that is you that know, is the... I want to see Jesus. Yep. That's the joy That's of it. all of us. It should be. And... You know, just think of it. He has atta- he has attained eternal redemption for us. Now, just think about that one phrase and think how long it'll take to truly grasp the immensity of just that. I don't think we can. You can't. There's no there's n- there's no bottom or top to that. No. You know. 
though it's going to be it's going to be a ride forever just learning him oh, yeah. just hold on <laughs> i used to be on the buck you know the horse that would buck me off you know i thought that was the ride you know that was the christian ride but it's not it's just kind of floating down the stream and letting it take me wherever it's going to take me right that's that's more like it you know it's kind of like this we look at ourselves and we see all the downfalls in the flesh and we say oh i'm a mess and we condemn ourselves and we think oh i just need jesus why don't we do that over on this other side when we've got it all in line and we think we've got it all figured out we think we have everything and we're doing it all perfectly. You know what that should do? It should throw up a red flag too. Yeah. And say, man, I need to see Jesus. Because right here, I think it's all taken care of because I've got it all together. No. We always have to stay in this condition of, I rejoice in the grace of God. And I, what does he say? I rejoice in my weaknesses. And I boast in the grace of God that tabernacles about me. Oh, you know, that's nice. That's good. That's the, you know, I, I, I hate to call that the middle ground. I think that's the only ground. That's the true yeah. ground in which we stand. And yeah. It's called standing in grace, the grace in which we stand. That's the true sufficient grace upon which we stand. It has you in a state of knowing I'm dependent on God at all times. And there's no good, there's no good extent or bad extent that I need to look toward. There's him. And I hate to say this because it could be taken in different ways, but it's, it's when the vessel becomes the insignificant part of the journey and Christ becomes the only significant part of it, there's wisdom beginning to happen. You know, wisdom's finally dawning in the heart. The wisdom of the Lord, I, I think, where it is, again, Christ made unto me this. Man, there's my boast. There's my boast. And if I can stay in that, on that, as the, as the young folks say, if I can stay in that lane where my boast is never in anything other than Christ made unto me, Christ in me, Christ as my life, salvation, righteousness, whatever, fellowship with God, any of it, if I could stay in that place right there, and any time I think I've graduated to something more, God bring me back right here. If I think I've graduated beyond that, humble me, bring me back here, show me there's no graduating beyond full dependence upon you because you don't that's a that is a false concept and i think that's that's where we stand that's the grace that we stand in